Welcome to Herbal Hour, the podcast for those inspired by nature. I'm your host, Dr. Bogdan, and I'm a licensed naturopath and traditional herbalist practicing in the lovely state of Oregon, bringing you organic discussions with experts in natural medicine, alternative therapies, and holistic mental health. Hippocrates taught us that the doctor treats, but it is nature that heals. So take a deep breath and get comfortable. We hope you enjoy our conversations over a cup of the finest herbal tea, because in nature, it's always herbal hour. Aeolian Har returns uh, to the Herbal Hour podcast today for a special kind of episode, a uh, group podcast with a uh, return guest, uh, Eric Anderson, the the professor of history and also himself an astrologer, um, and Rachel uh, is a professional astrologer as well. So we'll be talking a lot about uh, astrology, the philosophy behind it, history, who knows? Let's see. <laughs> Right on. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So nice to meet you, Eric. And it's nice to be back with you again, Dr. Dan. Excellent. So please, uh, please, Eric, take the take the floor on this one. Thank you, Bog. So Rachel, it's a real honor for me to uh, and for us to have you today. Uh, I you know told you before, I'm a big fan of your work. I've been reading you since you started writing about seven years ago. And, uh, you know, it's great for us to meet today. Uh, where you have the lunar eclipse happening. And I know almost everyone in my life is saying they're noticing a lot of heightened emotional energy. Mm. Uh, and, you know, whether or not they're into astrology, uh, mm. they're noticing something's, something's up in the cosmos currently. So really awesome to be able to chat with you today. Yeah. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll, we'll find out some new things about astrology that uh, we never knew before. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And happy eclipse, everybody. Um, eclipses are those times I've noticed where skeptics and materialists start listening more to mm-hmm. things like when the superstition starts becoming real even to the har- most hardened of skeptics yeah yeah for sure so very interesting point that you brought up so well, what so okay sorry go ahead. i'm sorry Bogdan. Yeah, yeah so um i just wanted to uh to jump into our first question before i do that uh, just say that you know rachel and aeolian heart uh you know definitely go onto her website and check out her book that uh, she wrote also, I'll be quoting from that today. It's a free ebook that she offers you when you sign up and subscribe on her website. I think that's a really cool thing to offer, uh, you know, new astrologers or people new into astrology uh, when you're getting to know someone's work. So I, you've always had, Rachel, this uncanny ability with your articles to dig into the depths of the human collective unconscious and uncover these pivotal individuals. And they can be philosophers, they could be writers, they could be musicians. And you somehow elucidate how their life's work or a particular uh, particular contribution of theirs is illustrative of the astrological energies that are ahead for us. Your work is unique in this way and makes it accessible to both the seasoned veteran in astrology as well as the beginner. So I really wanted to start this off today by asking you, how did you find astrology uh, or how did astrology find you? What is your astrological origin story? I've always been very curious to know this. Okay. Um, that's, uh, God, it's not like a great story in terms of there being a before and an after. It's not that dramatic for me. It was actually a very slow, long process. Um, but it's kind of interesting because, well, I was raised, um, I was raised, my mom is super Christian. So I was raised Christian. I went to a Lutheran school when I was a little girl. And um, the 
whole idea of getting into something like astrology was just not allowed. My mom did not want me messing around with the occult. And she categorizes astrology as the occult. Absolutely. And I'm totally at peace with my mom. So I'm not talking shit about my mom at mm-hmm. all right now. This is just... <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Shout out to all our mothers out there. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I love my mom. She was doing, you know, my mom's a Sagittarius, first of all. And when she believes in something, she believes in it extremely passionately. And her own experiences in life and some dangerous situations she had been in in her youth had led her to become very strict, very, very strict and and very dismissive of anything that she thought could lead me down a dark path. And so she included things like astrology in that. Mm -hmm. However, my father was not religious at all at the time. And my father was somebody who really got me inculcated into the world of art and culture and and history. My dad is a, a, a sort of an autodidactic historian. And so I had these two opposing parents and they really did fight a lot. There was a lot of conflict in my home. There was definitely not a lot of harmony. And so I had two ways of being introduced to me. And so I was sort of first initiated into an interest in something like astrology just by the influence of my dad, who was very tolerant of things like that. But, you know, my mom was definitely in charge when I was little. By the time I was in high school, um, I went through a very rebellious phase. My parents got divorced. I did that whole thing that kids do after their parents get divorced. And I completely broke the mold of who I had once been and I started, I started shoplifting books from the local bookstore, which was very naughty. I know, but you know, well, that's, was, that's, that's awesome. That's yeah. a very <laughs> holistic way to shoplift for, for yeah. knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> I thought exactly. if you said something else, I'd, I'd be like, okay, but because you said books. Yeah, no, that's, I, I actually, that's the way, agree yeah. if you are going to shoplift, shoplift uh, a book of wisdom and then pass yeah, it off I, to someone else to read. I, I had it all justified like that at the time as well. So in this, like, in this hobby that I developed as a rebellious teenager, I started stealing astrology books um, because my best friend was a Pisces and I was a Virgo. And I took note that those were opposite signs and I wanted to know more about that. So I explored that a little bit, but I didn't get really deep into it as a teenager because, you know, I had other things on my mind. I was doing a lot. So I didn't get past sun signs in, in high school. Um, and then By the time I entered college, I had developed an interest in studying anthropology, which put me into the social science crew. Mm -hmm. And I first encountered in that scene a very Enlightenment era dogmatic materialist attitude about everything. And so I found that all of my professors were extremely they were extremely dismissive of astrology. They called it a pseudoscience and they had like a really quick way of describing why it's complete nonsense and it's superstition and it's pseudoscience in the same breath in anthropology that they will tell you not to be Eurocentric and to be respectful of other people's cultures and other ways of knowing they still hold very fast to this belief that comes straight from, you know, Descartes, that mm. something like astrology is, has no value whatsoever. And so I took to that notion when I was really young, 18, 19, 20, because I believed that these people were smarter than me. And I just was, 
I was very seduced by the allure of being on the right side, using my rational mind. So I, I fell into that for a while and I completely cut off astrology and all things like that. Wow. (laughs) But it was so boring and dry. It's just not who I am, you know? And in anthropology, I started studying religion and then I started studying magic and witchcraft. And then I got my, my own interest in history and art started leading me down all of these paths. Like studying the Renaissance takes you straight to the heart of hermeticism. Mm -hmm. And so I started getting into, you know, like a lot of psychedelic authors like Terrence McKenna And he had this great lecture on hermeticism that I listened to, which led me to read Dame Francis Yates' book on Giordano Bruno, which made me understand deeply for the first time that the Renaissance was not just a flourishing time for art or architecture. It was, in fact, a magical Renaissance, first and foremost, before anything else. And that the father of the Renaissance, Marsilio Ficino, was a great astrologer and a magician. So that really piqued my interest. And then I found a really deep, passionate love for uh, the cultural critic, Camille Paglia. I read her book, Sexual Personae, and it changed my life. It actually was like everything I'd ever been looking for in terms of academic study, because her book is this exploration of the evolution of consciousness through art itself, starting with Paleolithic art, the Venus of Willendorf, going through ancient Egypt and onward into the 20th century. And for me, this was like the most rocking, exciting, amazing, ecstatic experience uh, as a student. And it was nothing I was assigned. It was always outside of or on the, the edges of what I was actually supposed to be reading. But Camille Paglia wrote extensively, I read everything she ever wrote, and she wrote extensively about how dope astrology was. And I was like, really excited. <laughs> she used those original terms too in her in her ancient works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but she really highly recommended astrology as a pagan cosmology, something that was ecological, something that that actually looked at time through cycles, which of course, if you're interested in history at any level, you understand that history repeats itself. History moves in cycles. Everything in nature moves in cycles. And so it's just little adjustments to my thinking that just tore away the conditioning of both my religious upbringing, as well as the much stronger, actually, the dogmatic materialist conditioning. That was stronger on me because I I feel like a religious taboo has inherently within it the desire to break the taboo. And there is still this connection to spirit. There's a connection to something bigger than yourself. There's a desire to know more deeply about the origins of things, the heart of creation. There's something more explorative about religion. But, you know, social science in a bureaucratic state university is the driest kind of cracker. And so very have- inhumane in some <laughs> sense, even though studying the human condition, somewhat, oh, somewhat so ironic. It's totally ironic. It's ridiculous, you know? And so um, I started reading astrology on my own and I was, 
I kind of kept it secret for a while, to be honest. It wasn't really, it was very verboten. It sounds really funny, but it actually was not cool. You know, you weren't supposed to be into that. It meant that you were anti-intellectual or that you were, you know, honestly, it was very, um, very sexist. Like they thought like, oh, just silly girls with no brains are into astrology, things like that. And I had this big ego at the time where I was like, I'm smart and I'm academic. And I really wanted to show that. So I was a little bit embarrassed about my interest in astrology for a while. But um, then I read, um, oh my God, I read this book called Women of the Golden Dawn by Mary Kay Greer. And this was a book about the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which was a, a, a British Victorian magical order that had been formed at the turn of the century, the turn of the 19th into the 20th century. And at the heart of this magical order were four really significant women that were incredible. They were artists, they were philosophers, they were totally groundbreaking. They're still groundbreaking and provocative. Even if they were alive today, they would still be fascinating women. But certainly in the Victorian era, they really stood out. And, you know, um, William Butler Yeats was a member and he was always one of my favorite poets. So everything was sort of leading to this mm. magical consciousness, getting deep into magic. And Mary Kay Greer wrote this biography of these four women and the history of this magical order using astrology as one of the lenses to look at the historical events. She used their natal charts as well as transits to really beautifully illuminate what was going on in their lives. And at that moment, after I read that book, I was like, this is serious. I really want to do this. I want to take this seriously. Um, so I started uh, learning astrology on my own and reading my friend's natal charts. And it was like my hobby for many years. And I was fully unaware that I was ever going to do it professionally because I was in school to become a teacher. You know, I was like fully on track to become a school teacher. I actually got a teaching credential to teach in public schools and everything. I did the whole thing. And then I went and got a master's degree in humanities so that I could get a better paid, be on a better pay scale and have more opportunities and maybe also teach college. And I was doing the whole academic track. Um, but after I graduated, um, from grad school, I, uh, many synchronicities had been leading me. Many strange things had happened. So one of them was the first, the first astrology class that I ever took in person, um, in 2012, I think it was 2012. I actually went out and went to a class to actually see if I could do this in person and like, you know, actually see what I had actually put together on my own, see how it measured up. And my teacher in this class was super into this astrologer named Austin Kopic. And Austin Kopic is, he's got, he's on the astrology podcast. He has a really important book called 36 Faces. You know, Austin Kopic is pretty significant, but this was before he had published 36 Faces. And she was his student. And so she kept talking about him all the time. And when I was in her class, I showed up to my Monday night Qigong class at a place called the Taoist Institute, which is where I was practicing Qigong. And who walks in but Austin Kopic? 
And he didn't even live in LA. He had actually just moved to LA and he showed up at the studio where I was practicing Qigong. And I was like, oh my God, that's really strange. What are the odds? I've never heard of this person before. I just found out who they are. And they didn't used to live in LA until like this week. And they moved to the city I live in. And he moved to the martial arts studio where I was taking Qigong. And so um, through that connection, I was made aware of the whole Hellenistic astrology movement, <laughs> like the whole Hellenistic revival. And so I was invited to his book publishing party for his, his book, 36 Faces. And I realized like, this is really, this really fits. This shoe really fits. This world makes a lot of sense to me. I really vibe with this. This is making a lot of sense. Meanwhile, I'm getting my master's degree and I think I'm becoming a teacher. But by the time I graduated, um, so many doors had opened, so many synchronicities had occurred. So many things had led me to understand that I was much happier reading people's natal charts. And I had spent the last two years writing academic essays. And all I had really wanted out of the humanities and being an English teacher, which was my original idea, all I wanted out of that was the joy of sharing my love of art and culture and history and poetry. And it really clicked after I graduated that I could do that. I could have fulfill everything that I loved and everything I had studied and everything I had practiced by just taking a risk and starting my own blog. So I did that. And that's the, the process that I went through. There's so many layers to it. It's hard to exactly clarify when and where and how it all came down. But for me, it was a very slow awakening, a slow realization that like I, I was supposed to do something like this all along. I just didn't know. And I realized kind of at the 11th hour um, and Saturn was in my 12th house. And it makes sense because the former life that I had been building or thought that I was working towards all dissolved which is very evocative of a 12th house transit, especially something like Saturn. So everything that I thought I was doing completely broke down. And yet it was also rebuilt. It was regenerated. All the materials that I had been working with found a new form. So it is quite seriously a metamorphosis. Like the caterpillar was me thinking I'm going to join the legit world of academia become a teacher that has a regular paycheck and benefits and all the things I really wanted and was working hard to get, all of that just fell apart. I could not get a grip on it. Everything just fell apart, dissolved and was reshaped and reformed into this passion for writing astrology articles, reading natal charts for people, and then later writing tons of classes and teaching astrology. So now I am a teacher, like I always thought I would be. And I still study and research and enjoy the world of art and history and culture, but I get to study anything and anyone I want. I get to write about anything and anyone I want. And that level of freedom is what really keeps me going because the thing that I really hated about school, everyone hates about school, is how many rules there are. There's so many restrictions. And when I was in grad school, I had to fight really hard to be able to use astrology in my research. 
And I did fight for it. And I did use astrology in my research um, because at some, at, at some level, I argued to the point where they could not actually stop me from using the oldest body of knowledge on the planet mm -hmm. as a reference, so long as I didn't consider it a primary text. So I found a way to combine my essays and astrology in school. What were you uh, researching in particular? Oh, the Romantic era and the discovery of Uranus. And I would use the natal charts of historical figures that we were writing about to gain some context and some clarity and some insight. Um, certainly any major events in somebody's life. I did what Mary Kay Greer taught me to do in her book, Women of the Golden Dawn. And not as well as her, of course, but nevertheless. And it was, um, it was so fun for me. It really made everything come alive. And I became really reinvigorated by the whole process of studying. And so when I started writing my own articles, um, I just did that. I just combined humanities, culture, art, poetry, history with astrology. And I made it a little more fun because you don't have to put jargon or footnotes or anything clumsy like that. You can just share and that's what I do. So I hope that explains the story. <laughs> That's the storyline. That was that was excellent. That was super inspiring, and uh, you know, I think we're all better off now knowing that story, that origin story of how you, uh, you know, or how astrology really found you, and you were looking for it. You were, you know, trying to figure out how to make it real and, and see how other people in your life would reflect that knowledge and that truth. And um, you know, you eventually found it, and now you're doing it on your own. You've become an entrepreneur in this way, and yeah. um, you know, absolutely just probably one of the most inspiring stories I've heard in a long time, because it does relate to something that is taboo, something that is such a challenge in, in these times right now to venture off and try to uh, go off the beaten path and find your way. It seems harder than ever, but in some ways it's actually more important than ever that we try to do those things and branch off mm -hmm. because it's clear that the old system is, is collapsing. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you so much for, you know, giving that whole story there. That was great. I feel like we could end it now. And uh, feel like, all right, well, we, we got everything we needed out of today. We learned a lot. Um, but you left off there on the 12th house with Saturn. You said that's kind of where you noticed that everything kind of hit ahead and yeah. you finally found your footing. Um, I would say the same for me as well. I've uh, told this to Wagner before in other podcasts where my 12th house transit, my son's in the 12th house. So once Saturn hit that, that was like the beginning of the end for me. And from there, it was a very tough time, but eventually it, you know, Help me become the person that I always wanted to be, didn't know who I even wanted to be, help me tap into that subconscious truth of, uh, you know, who I really am. Right. So the next question I have for you is related to the ascendant, um, because it is kind of a hard thing to understand in astrology. That always and actually confuses me personally, like the ascendant versus the sun sign. I always have a hard time differentiating those. Okay. Right. Yeah. So uh, your book, uh, Heartbeat, Understanding Your Natal Chart, that free book that I mentioned, you say the ascendant is a slippery concept. Um, you mentioned that it's kind of like the unrehearsed role that we play uh, with the natal chart being kind of the play of our lives. So elaborate on your ideas regarding what the ascendant and rising, rising sign represent to you and an individual's uh, character or personality. And do you think the ascendant relates to one's capacity to remain in authenticity with one's ultimate self? Do I think the ascendant contributes to your capacity to remain in authenticity? Is that what you said? Yes. That's kind of like the last part there, because I feel like you wrote something similar to that. 
And like, almost like the ascendant is kind of that like string that kind of ties everything together that allows for an individual to express their deepest being in an authentic way in in our world. I'm going to, I'm going to like, actually, I did write that. That's my book, but I'm going to change metaphors here to make it a little bit more visceral and understandable because I feel like the rising sign isn't actually hard if you understand it to be something akin to your energetic skin, skin, which is what it is both what's on the surface, what people kind of pick up from you, they can see your skin. And it is also the most important sensory organ. This is how you perceive everything. This is how you're literally feeling everything in reality out is through your skin. That's where all your nerves are. That's where all of your sensory perception and therefore a tremendous amount of your intelligence is actually derived from. So it is something that is on the surface, the ascendant. It represents something that's right there on the surface, like your skin. And a lot of times in pop astrology, you'll see the ascendant described as persona, which is somewhat useful, but I kind of, I don't like persona because persona is associated with a mask and a Mm -hmm. mask implies that there's something artificial about it, something shallow or artificial, something pretentious. And it also implies that it's something you could take on and put off. Like, and that's not the case with the ascendant. The ascendant is like your skin. It's nothing that you're putting on. It's there on you already. And it represents something really essential about the way that you present your energy as well as how you perceive things, how you're feeling things out. So I think that um, it's really important to think about the ascendant that way as your energetic skin. So let's just say, well, let's use your chart as an example. So Eric, what is your rising sign? So my rising is also my sun sign, Scorpio, and it conjuncts with Mercury and Pluto. Okay. So to be a Scorpio rising, that means that your energetic skin actually senses and perceives reality through the intelligence or the influence of Scorpio. So what is Scorpio all about? I mean, there's a lot of things. This is where it it takes, it's like a whole conversation to give somebody a reading, but let's just pull out some keywords. Scorpio is the season of death. It's when the sun actually dies in the great myth of the Zodiac. You know, the Zodiac is just the sun's story. It's this like beautiful story that has 12 chapters and 12 important scenes. So Scorpio is the underworld where the sun travels when it dies. And it's very interesting to note, of course, that the scene of the sun's death is only the eighth sign in the zodiac it's like the eighth chapter in the story so death is not the end that's a really important message from the land of scorpio death is just a part of the process of transformation energy dies and is transformed so scorpio energy scorpionic intelligence a scorpio rising person is somebody who sees underneath the surface of things just like the sun sinks into the underworld rather than you feeling things out on the surface level of reality, rather than you dealing with 
conscious waking things. Instead, you're far more attuned to, especially with all those other placements. But let's just say we're talking about Scorpio rising alone. You're far more sensitive to and capable of perceiving everything that is underneath the surface. So the way that you relate to others as a Scorpio rising can be extremely intense because people can feel you feeling them out underneath <laughs> the surface. <laughs> and it's really tough. <laughs> it's either really blissful because somebody's like, oh my God, you actually see me for yes. who I really am. Thank you. Thank you for actually seeing me for who I really am and, and holding space and being able to listen and, and actually knowing the truth, not being so shallow. Some people really appreciate that. Yes. While others, especially those that have something to hide, something that they are lying about or something that they're fronting, those people are going to be extremely intimidated by the energy of Scorpio rising because you are literally penetrating beneath the surface. And so you're seeing the intention that's underneath the words. You're seeing the emotions that are underneath the face. So a lot of people are good at smiling and pretending to be happy, but you are the kind of person that can sense with your sensitive scorpionic skin, you can sense if that smile is fake. And so it's a, it's a really big responsibility to have that much scorpionic energy. You feel things out as they are beneath the surface, especially through deep emotion. You're very intelligent about what's going on emotionally inside others. And your struggle as a Scorpio rising is to trust that feeling that you get from others because it can be very challenging and you can get gaslit a lot when you know something's off and people deny it. They deny that you're sensing something real. It can be really confusing because it can make a person feel really crazy. Like I know that there's something off, but nobody will admit to it or I have no proof other than my feelings that can be extremely maddening, but Scorpio rising people, they feel things out that way. They feel into secrets. They feel into the darkness. They feel into the intense emotions that most people hide for fear of overwhelming others like lust, rage, desire, hunger. That's a little too intense for polite society, things like that. You can feel that in people. Um, but it's also something that is important to know that people see this in you. There's something that you can sense regarding the rising sign in a person that is not possible to, it's not possible to guess somebody's moon sign. You have to know somebody to feel out their moon sign. It's not really possible to, uh, to pick up on somebody's sun sign necessarily. I mean, sometimes we can, but it's really the rising sign that we feel from people. Just like we see the surface of somebody's skin. And then of course, the clothes that they choose and everything. But again, this isn't really a costume you're choosing. It's your skin. It's the light in your eyes. It's the way that you appear to others. And it's not shallow. It's not shallow at all. It's again, it's the way that you appear to others is actually the way that you perceive. And that's something really important to remember for all of us, how you're vibing, how you're feeling things out, how you're perceiving is exactly how others kind of perceive you. They pick up on that. So with the Scorpio rising, people pick up on, you're really intense. They might love that or they might be put off by it. 
uh, Scorpio's real like love or hate because it's intense. It gets a reaction. Like I said, it's really dependent on how much, <laughs> somebody, how much somebody wants to be well-known, you know, like if yeah. I, call, if I was like, Oh my God, they're asking me questions. I, these are, I don't want to share. Then I would probably be like really uncomfortable right now, but I'm perfectly comfortable with all of this. So it's fine. Um, but yeah, you're actually like somebody who <sighs> you're here to not make small talk. You want to make intimate, deep talk. And that's really what Scorpio rising is all about. And, um, what is the purpose of that? It's to transform energy. So Scorpio has a meta purpose and that is death and transformation. Sex, death, transformation describes the alchemical process. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> why? Why do we like that? What's good about that? Jimi Hendrix in the back of uh, <laughs> behind Eric back there. It's not just decadent. It's not just leading you to your death because you're, you know, living hard. And it's about transforming energy. It's about catharsis. That's what Scorpio is all about. So that's why mm. sex, drugs, and rock and roll are Scorpionic. But so is depth psychology. So mm. are psychedelic experiences. So is energy work, just straight up qigong, because qigong is, it all it means is energy work in Chinese anyway. It's like, actually, it's nothing mystical, energy work. Energy work is about working with energy, refining it, distilling it, transmuting it, changing its shape or changing its energy. Um, because that's what we do. That's what nature is all about. So the role of Scorpio is that. So the reason why you like to get in deep with people, the reason why you're attuned to that level of consciousness is because no real transformation, no catharsis can actually occur when people are being fake and surface level. That's not real. That's not going to produce any catharsis. Um, so there's a purpose for every gift that we all have. And so that's yours, Scorpio rising, Scorpio on the surface, that's your skin. Um, in terms of like, how this changes the role that you play. In your case, it's very important to connect with Scorpio, embody Scorpio, understand Scorpio, appreciate everything about it because you said rising sun, Mercury, and Pluto. Is that what you said? Yes. That's intense. Wow. That's a lot of Scorpio. So <laughs> <laughs> for you, it's a major, major theme. But let's just say you were just a regular Scorpio rising, no planets there. Um, it's important to then look to your placement of Mars because Mars is the ruler of Scorpio. Mm. So the ruler of your whole chart is the ruler of your of your rising sign. And this is something really simple, but so important to know. So in your case, that's Mars, the ruler of Scorpio. So look to your Mars placement to get another level of insight as to what your Scorpio energy is here to accomplish, what you're supposed to be focusing that on, what you're supposed to be doing with all those gifts, you know? So I'll, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. You just told my life story now. You went it's a very accurate representation from like an objective point of view, me knowing yeah, Bob, you know so me a little bit too. We get intense yeah. like right away. I don't, we say like, hello. And then we just like get into some epically deep conversation about some like a deep emotion or some archetype that we experience in our life. Yeah. yeah very accurate. That's so cool. So, Scorpios are cool. That's why everyone, well, not everyone likes them. Like I said, but people that like Scorpios, I like Scorpios. 
I like Scorpio. Don't hate on Scorpio, guys. Carl um, Jung was a Scorpio. Yes. <laughs> and they're also funny. And why? Why are Scorpios Very sarcastically funny? funny. <laughs> they're really funny because humor is alchemy. That is transforming mm. pain into yes. pleasure. Pain into comedy. Comedy doesn't come from nowhere. It doesn't. And when people try to be funny and it's not born from pain, it's not funny. It's flat. The only real humor that really makes people laugh and really provides that catharsis, that healing is humor that's born from pain. So Scorpios are great at that. They're hysterical because they actually, they live in the underworld. They know all about that pain that lingers there, but they also are really connected. And the more elevated the Scorpio, the more connected they are to the process of transforming pain into pleasure, pain into humor, transmutation. So comedy is one of the great Scorpio gifts. And um, that's another reason why people like Scorpios. Mm. They're funny, <laughs> you know. Eric, you wanted to mention uh, something in, in response. Uh, uh, how do you think that that relates to your life? Is there other aspects of Scorpio that you've kind of experienced for yourself that you think are, are significant? Um, well, you know, it was great because Rachel uh, mentioned Mars. And so if you look at my chart, my Mars is exactly trining my rising yeah. uh, and it's in the eighth house. So Scorpio, another layer of Scorpio there. Very nice. So I was curious, you know, I was going to kind of go into the next question and ask you about the houses, because that's kind of something that, you know, maybe a big, uh, advanced beginner of astrology or an intermediate astrologer, you know, they understand the signs, they understand the planets a little bit. And then they're looking at the chart and they're trying to understand that level of houses. I know I, that's kind of where I was at. I read a lot of Dane Rudyard, you know, understanding cycles, mm -hmm. um, you know, understanding aspects. And then the houses come in and it's like, wow, this is a whole nother level you can at the surface level kind of compare them to the signs and, you know, the eighth house is like Scorpio, like I just said, first house like Aries and yeah. so on. Um, so I wanted to get, you know, uh, your opinion on this. You do talk about it a little bit in your book as well. You call the houses these fields of experience. Um, they kind of show us the various settings of, in life that provide the contextual backdrops for our performance that we're in in our lives. So I wondered, like, have you personally experienced the effects of uh, a planetary placement? in particular houses in your natal chart or in, in others that you've, um, you know, studied over the, over the years. Are you talking about natal chart or transits through my natal chart? We'll talk about, uh, yes, that's a good distinction to make. Let's, let's focus on just the natal chart first. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, if you want to jump into transits as well, be my guest. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, the reason why I do this for a living and out of, passion is because when I, I taught myself to read my natal chart before I ever got a professional reading. And cause that's just the way I do things. Um, and when I first started looking at my chart as a whole, not just like, Oh, I'm a Virgo. I learned that back in high school, like I said, but I didn't go very deep into the natal chart. I thought it looked scary back then. And so I kind of shelved it. But when I actually in my twenties started reading natal charts and I looked at my natal chart, um, I couldn't believe what the, the story that it told me was just so reflective of my life and so intimate and also really challenging to me because one of the things in my natal chart was um, my son in Virgo, which I had always known about, is actually conjunct my midheaven. Exactly. Wow. In the 10th house. And so when I first saw that, 
as you know, a kid, like, I guess I was, I don't know, 22, 23. When I first looked at that, I was like, so shy. I could barely function. I was an extremely, I'm an introvert and I was so introverted at the time. I've really balanced out at this time in my life. I was too shy to do anything pretty much. I just like kept my mouth shut in class and I wrote and that's how I expressed myself to my teacher. Very Virgo. Yes. Totally. And so when I saw that, I was like, there's no way in hell that that makes any sense. I can't, I can't do that. But one of the reasons why I was taking the pursuit of being a teacher so seriously was because I saw that sun in the 10th house conjunct the midheaven. And so I just quickly kind of put something in my life path that I thought represented that, that made sense. I'm like, well, there you go. You know, I'm trying to become a teacher and that's the sun in the 10th house conjunct the midheaven. And like I said, my life unfolded in a way that I didn't anticipate. I did not premeditate this. It just happened. And since then I've been much more public than I ever thought I would be in my life. Like I never had social media before I did Aeolian Heart Astrology. I had no interest in any kind of public life. I had no interest in being open and vulnerable. And now I am living out the sun conjunct midheaven in the 10th house very much. I have thousands of readers. I'm always giving webinars. I'm always doing things that are open, public, and very, um, you know, vulnerable in my former opinion. My former opinion of what I do would be like that it's impossible, that it's terrifying, but it just happened. And this is a great example of how your natal chart shows you a lot about who you are, where you've been, but it also, even without studying transits, you see like, oh, I'm probably going to grow into that. And I've sort of grown into a much more embodied sun conjunct midheaven than I, anything I could have even imagined for myself. And again, I didn't do it on purpose. I did. I mean, I've worked hard, but it was like, I thought it meant something else. I thought that the sun in the 10th house conjunct the midheaven meant I'll become a school teacher. And that would have been fine. That actually would represent that energy. But um, how many people would have actually, would I actually have been talking to at a time? Maybe 30, you know, if I had six classes a day, it would be like 180 people a day that I would actually be talking to. Uh, versus now I'm talking to thousands. It's very interesting how that happened. So when mm. you look at your natal chart, you see potential as well. And I haven't even fulfilled the full potential of it. I am being very humble and aware that I don't even know the full potential of everything that's in my chart. But when you look at your chart, it's a work in progress. You're not done developing ever. And there's so much that you're growing into all the time. And I think that one of the greatest things about astrology in my perspective is that mass culture, status quo culture looks at human development as being very interesting in childhood, adolescence, up to like age 21. And then after that, it's just like, it's this rough impressionistic sketch. Like there's 21 and then middle age and then old age. And it's just totally boring. There's nothing that interesting to talk about in terms of evolution of the psyche, psychological sophistication, evolution, maturity. There's absolutely no real deep qualitative 
study of what happens to a human being as they grow past early, early adulthood. Um, whereas in astrology, there is a very deep, detailed study of human development from birth to death. And there's not a single moment in a human life that's not full of complex, rich, deep transformation, evolution, very important stages of wisdom and maturity. So um, your chart is your potential and you never know exactly how you're going to fulfill that potential. So that's been kind of very humbling for me because when I first saw that, I thought I knew what it meant. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll become a school teacher. And that's not what happened. And it's become much bigger of an expression of the 10th house than I ever thought it could be. And I still don't know what the full potential is. So remember that when you're looking at your natal chart, it's totally evolving. Mm -hmm. And um, you're not usually the best judge of what your full potential is. That's why it's helpful to talk to somebody else, even when you're an astrologer, because yeah, <laughs> same thing for, for, for medicine and healing. You could be like the most genius herbalist, but you don't know what you don't know and what, what you don't know, you don't know about yourself can be something that's like really obvious to people, uh, especially like close friends who are like, Hey, yeah. this and that. And you're like, Oh wow. Yeah. How did I not see that? So very, very useful there. Exactly. 100%. We always have blind spots with ourselves and, you know, our ego gets in the way and thinks that it knows everything. And it's, it doesn't, you know, my ego was very invested in a totally different life. And then it just, you know, collapsed. Mm. <laughs> like, so um, I, had a, I had a question for you. Uh, yeah. If I could indulge myself. Uh, how would you explain the the sign of Sagittarius? That's that's my uh, my sun sign, and yeah. uh, early on, as I you know studied through philosophy, Eastern philosophies, meditation, kind of just basically anything and everything mystical, like tarot, had that whole kind of process. I uh, you know I always like look back to astrology because it. In some kind of interesting way, the things that I read about Sagittarius became like some self-fulfilling prophecy that I that not uh, I couldn't get away from, and mm -hmm. nor did I want to. Like mm -hmm. when I went away from it, I lost like something that was important to me. So how how would you explain, let's say, uh, uh, Sagittarius just for for okay. comparison? Um, I have learned the most about the spirit of Sagittarius from William Blake, one of my favorite writers mm -hmm. and William artists. Blake's great. He's great. He's one of the world's greatest Sagittarians, right? Like he's to me, uh, I just studied him to really understand. So the Zodiac, like I said, is the, it's a myth that actually tells the sun's story through its journey through the seasons, honestly. I mean, we have this sense that it's moving through the Zodiac, but you know, we know that the sun isn't moving, the earth is turning, that doesn't matter. It's about how it appears to us here on earth. So the sun's light shifts throughout the year, through the seasons, mm -hmm. and each chapter of the Zodiac tells us a significant moment in the sun's journey. And so Scorpio, as I said, is the season of the sun's death. The sun actually, descends into the underworld. And how do we perceive that? 
on earth. We see that the light is no longer strong enough to inspire anything to grow. Everything's withering and dying. The earth is getting cold and hard. Nothing is growing anymore. In fact, the leaves are falling. Everything's dying because the sun's light has grown so dim. And we call that the season of death. Whereas Sagittarius, interestingly enough, is the holiday season. It's this time where everything gets sparkly and beautiful and generous. And why is it such a light-filled season when in fact the reality, the external reality is that Sagittarius is even darker and even colder than the season of death? Yeah, that is, that's a very interesting thing to, to point out there. Right. Please continue. Oh. What Sagittarius is all about is after the journey through the underworld, story is not over. Death is actually something that is moved through. The underworld is something that is passed through. And on the other side of the underworld is the knowledge of not the light without, but the light within, mm -hmm. which is the Holy Spirit itself, the Holy Spirit comes alive and actually guides the sun out of the underworld. And with that realization of the light within comes the knowledge of eternal life, of resurrection after death, of something that is beyond this material world. So literally Sagittarius represents the evolution of consciousness that all human beings have somewhere, but people born in the season of Sagittarius are great torturers of. But that knowledge is that there is something beyond this life. There's something beyond this material world. There's something outside of the dimensions that we call reality. And the desire to know what that is and to expand beyond this world is what Sagittarius is all about. So it's the knowledge of the light within that is eternal life, that is resurrection after death, but there is no death. Death is just a transitional phase. That's uh, what I was saying for about two hours after my very first very strong psilocybin experience. Uh, yeah. Went through a lot of light tunnels, hardly have much memory of it. Um, but what I remember is when I, when I kind of, you know, uh, got up from uh, from laying down because I literally just closed my eyes. It was getting so intense that I was just like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And um, and yeah, I remember that going through my through my mind. Like death is is not death is not possible at least in the in the way that we think yeah. of it. How, how would you? Um, so one thing that's very interesting about Sagittarius in particular is the kind of uh, guiding myth behind it of uh, you know the centaur or Chiron. Uh, and it's, it has an interesting feature in it that, you know, the, the centaurs are, are of course a very rowdy bunch. They're like, like marauders and this and that, and they like to drink and they're very, you know, they're, they're not really the, the best kind of, uh, beings. However, in particular, uh, Chiron, the, the, the root of, uh, Sagittarius from, from what I understand, uh, somehow has those aspects like he has that like animal aspect but has something like different because uh, it, it's kind of interesting with the self-fulfilling prophecy thing because i remember reading about 
that myth when I was like 18 and, uh, and like much of the things that that myth talks about are things that like I was just interested in. And no matter, you know, what I did or what I thought, I always like returned to it and not even like consciously from remembering what would you, what would you say about that? Uh, the significance of that, uh, archetype, let's say this, like, uh, almost like, you know, half human, half divine. I've, I've always kind of seen Sagittarius and, and my role in life, whether I want to or not, I've decided to go along with it is like uniting the opposites. I've always felt that in everything I study and everything I do, it's, it's really always about that for me. Hmm. Yeah. Um, some thoughts, the, First of all, the, again, the time of year is really important to remember because the kind of, the kind of tenacity and strength that is required to keep the animal body of the horse and the human torso together, to keep them woven together and working together is a tremendous amount of strength and effort. And it's incredibly difficult because they kind of want to tear apart from one another. They kind of want to run away from each other, but the strength that it requires to keep those two things together is sort of evocative of the struggle that the sun is experiencing as it descends more and more each day through Sagittarius season. So the days are going shorter and shorter and shorter leading up to the solstice, of course which is the sun at the nadir, the bottom of the sky. And so that descent is like, it's a great struggle for the sun because it's going to have to start climbing back up and it's sinking and sinking. So it's kind of like experiencing again, like another kind of death, but it's not the same death that it experienced in Scorpio. And so the centaur is something that represents evolution itself, the tenacity and the strength that has actually required to evolve. Mm -hmm. And so it shows human consciousness itself, which is first animal consciousness, our body. Our body is a big part of who we are and what we think and how we behave and what our motivations are. You know, we are deeply, deeply biological. And that comes with a tremendous amount of strain and struggle because we're always hungry or tired or hurt or, you know, it's just so many things, or we want to have sex or we want to get high. There's just so many things that our body is constantly pushing and pulling us to do. And the human torso represents the higher octave of consciousness, which is something that is actually capable of being rational, reasonable, connecting dots, synthesizing information, knowing of past, present, and future, knowing about death and what's beyond. So basically the human torso is the very thing that was born from that journey through the underworld, the knowledge of death and what's beyond, um, the ability to handle time itself as a, as a level of consciousness. But the center of Sagittarius also is the archer. And that's the important thing because the the arrow is always pointing up towards the sky. He's not actually mm -hmm. hunting for food. He's always pointing to the stars. Mm. And that represents the next level of consciousness, which is to know God, to know the divine, to know mm. the source of creation, to get back to 
the numinous. And that's what Sagittarius is all about, trying to keep all these things together so that there can actually be a platform to jump off from into the heavens above, mm. back to the source. That's mm. why the struggle to keep the animal body and human body together is so important because if those things come apart, then there's nothing to shoot the arrow. <laughs> like, it's a foundational thing that has to build on top of one another. And so the thing about Sagittarius is that it wants to expand as far and wide into the cosmos as possible to know the truth, the universal truth, and to continue to expand. And what's really cool, you know, it's ruled by Jupiter and Jupiter is about expansion. And we have actually scientifically proven that the universe is expanding, eternally expanding. It is actually the true nature of reality, this expansion of consciousness. So Sagittarius really embodies that um, and also contains within it the struggle because to constantly expand can mean that there is uh, a sort of um, a, a mutability, a distractibility, uh, an inability to stay focused. <laughs> like, yeah, that's like perhaps my greatest gift and my greatest curse at the at the same time is is having the having the arrow shooting in way too many directions um, at once, uh, just for sheer excitement of that. Yeah, exactly. Sagittarians are very excitable. They get and when they believe in something, they're true believers. And so I always say, <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> it is, it's true. If you also have, intense in a, in a different, in a different kind of way. Yeah. Well, you know, you've survived death. So Scorpio is the death pretty intense. And then Sagittarius says, I've survived death and I know there's more and that's the message. <laughs> and so of course, I have survived you, Eric. No. <laughs> I have a lot of Scorpio in my, in my chart too. I have like three yeah. different planets and, and things. That's probably why we get along. Would you, uh, would you like to talk about uh, Virgo and what that is significant to you, the archetypal themes behind uh, Virgo, which ones resonate with you, which ones, uh, which ones don't? Sure. Um, I am a, a Virgo through and through my Mercury's in Virgo. The ruler of Virgo is Mercury and my Mercury's in Virgo. And I've always felt deeply resonant with that. Even in sidereal astrology, I'm still a Virgo. So I cannot mm. escape it. <laughs> like, my wow. sign does not change. Um, but Virgo is one of the most misunderstood signs. And I have really made it one of my missions as an astrologer to open up the Virgoan understanding because it's really silly. Virgin in today's language means what? Just somebody who's never had sex. Like, yeah, which is a completely watered down idea. Yeah. Very, very watered down idea. Yeah. So that translates to the modern psyche. Like, oh, a virgin, someone who's never had sex, someone who's young, inexperienced, naive, or they're like, there's something antisocial about them, you know, because that after a certain age, I suppose, according to status quo expectations, if you're still a virgin, there's something wrong with you or whatever. But none of that has anything to do with what Virgo, the virgin means in the Zodiac. Mm -hmm. um, virgin, Virgo refers to an ancient pact or an ancient devotion to between a priestess and the earth, number one. So it has nothing to do with the sex life or the sexual experience of a woman. Rather, it was a reference to a priestess of the earth who devoted her life 
instead of to marriage, which was pretty much the only option for women in the ancient world. So let's just be real about what was going on in the ancient world. Women got married and they had children. And when they did, their time and their life, their na- everything about them belonged to their husband and to the family that they were a part of. And high status women belonged to their husbands and low status women belonged to their husbands. This is just how it was. Mm. And women who weren't married uh, typically, uh, from what I read, were had a really hard, hard time. They were kind of shunned by society in general, especially older women who weren't married, like widows. Yeah. I mean, you actually like could not survive. Like most women today who really appreciate their freedom would have happily gotten married under these conditions because how else are you going to live? You know, that's just how things were. Mm-hmm. Um, but the virgin was a very special position in society where you became a priestess and you devoted your life. You married the earth. You married the spirit of nature itself. You became devoted to a completely different path. And therefore the virgin actually represented the role of priestess, as well as the role of, um, somebody who owned her own time, which was unique for a woman. This is a very unique position. Someone who owns their own time, meaning nobody else owns their time. So what Virgo the Virgin represents in the Zodiac is a priestess who owns her own time and who embodies by complete and total connection because she is whole unto herself. She is not influenced by anything else. She is complete and whole unto herself, hermetically sealed from other influences, she therefore becomes the embodiment of and the sort of medium of divine order in creation. So this whole idea of Virgos being great spellers, they're great at grammar, they're great at... <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds pretty ridiculous as a description. <laughs> yeah, well, It's actually true, but why? The logos. Why? Yeah. Why? Yeah. The logos. Exactly. It it is in in this very like, you know, bureaucratic way. It's very true. If you go to any newspaper or any like major publication, the editorial room is heavily weighted towards Virgos. I mean, it's really true. There have been studies done on this. And I actually, I used to win spelling bees like crazy and it was just easy for me. I just have a natural sense of grammar and spelling and all of that. Not that I don't make typos. I do because I'm a blogger, but Mm -hmm. I'm an excellent speller and I always was, and I'm an excellent editor. And I always was writing always came easy to me. These things come easy to Virgos. They just do natural sense of order. Um, but it's so much deeper than paperwork. And that's the lame thing about the modern sense of what a Virgo is. What it actually is, is attunement to the divine order of creation that we see in sacred geometry in numerology through the logos, which of course, course expresses itself in language our language is an expression of the logos um and many other things so this is why virgos are very good at discerning between what is ordered and disordered what is healthy and what is diseased what is something that represents a good path or a malfunction. (laughs) So they're here to diagnose, essentially. That's what Virgoan consciousness is here to do because the association with agriculture, it's the end of summer. It's very important that harvest begins and that all of the seeds that are going to be saved for next year's crops are sorted. Only the best seeds need to be saved. 
the diseased crops, the ones that didn't work out, they need to be sorted out and thrown away so that the health of the community is looked out for and supported by only growing the best of the seeds that we got from this year. That's a totally Virgoan task, sorting good seeds from bad seeds, because it's mm. very important. Our future depends on it. You can't be growing diseased, poisonous crops mm. and expect the children to be growing up to be healthy. And of course, living in the world that we live in today with Monsanto and everything, it drives a Virgo fucking insane. Yeah, as it, as it should drive everybody insane too. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. the spirit of Virgo, I mean, it's in everybody's chart. Mm. Everyone has all 12 signs. We just have highlights and exclamation marks and punch. different layers different layers I, I think that that's a really that was kind of a big shift in how i understood astrology uh yeah. was that idea of like the journey of the soul through all of the signs like you're born under some imprints but you can learn about yourself from people that are uh, that are different than you, people that are different signs, people that have different qualities. And you'll f often find a lot of uh, like resonance in, in areas. Um, that's really interesting. So you're you're basically uh, archetypally you're a kind of uh, seed gatherer and sifter within yeah. the world of the logos. I think that's that's that would be a good way to describe based on your 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 uh, writing that I've read. Um there they also tend to I I remember hearing and, and let me know if this is you know true to the astrology or even to just your own experience um that Virgo's kind of like the scientist or like the humanist of the of the wheel. Does that is that resonant at all or not? Well the the deeply analytical and diagnostic mind can certainly be used for great effect in science. You know, the real scientific method is quite Virgoan. Um, but you can also say that those themes apply to Aquarius. So it is interesting because Aquarius and Virgo do share some similarities. And they're both human. They're both like human signs yeah. too, right? Which is Which is interesting because most others, they're not... They're not human or like the centaur. It's like only half human. Right. There's only two humans in the Zodiac and it is mm. Virgo, the Virgin, the maiden standing in the wheat fields and Aquarius, the water bearer. Um, the difference between them is that Virgo is the servant of humanity, meaning that they make the greatest healers, doctors, uh, you know, anything that a Virgo does is healing. So it actually doesn't matter what your profession is, but they're very good at diagnosing and offering help. Virgos are helpers. They're servants of humanity. They're here to help. That's what makes a Virgo come alive. If you have a Virgo in your life and they want to help you and you don't let them, you're actually hurting their feelings and you're not letting them thrive. Um, Virgos are also self-motivated. They don't need bosses telling them to work harder. They raise their own standards. They're whole unto themselves. They don't, they're very independent workers versus Aquarius, who is the servant of the gods or mm -hmm. the ancestors, you know, you can look at it either way, but Aquarius is not the servant of humanity is the servant of the gods. And that ends up being beneficial for humanity, which is wonderful. Um, Aquarius is humanitarian, but is very distant and estranged from humanity. Whereas Virgo is right in the center of the Zodiac, very much a part of, the world, mm -hmm. 
human life very um, accessible and is um, because Virgo is a servant, there is a, a quality of kind of natural humility in Virgo, which is a strange thing because Virgos don't ask for, they don't like to ask for praise and applause and stuff like that. They're not like attention grabbers like Leo. However, um, that's why Virgos get put down and sort of like abused a lot in modern professional situations because they're, they're quiet and reserved and they, it's not their way to push themselves in your face and brag and like make sure everyone knows how great they are or how much they contributed to the project. It's just not their natural way. So they get kind of like stepped on a lot, taken advantage of a lot. And that is a very damning thing for Virgo because it's hard. That's a, a very difficult situation. Mm -hmm. So, all What is the guys, time? Uh, sorry for interrupting. What, what is the time window of Virgo? Is it like August 21st to... 23rd August 23rd to to what September um that would this the equinox which can be on the 20th or the 21st okay the okay yeah. okay the reason I ask is because you mentioned about like the maiden in the wheat field and that that resonates a lot with the different myths around Persephone and the Eleusinian uh mysteries and things do you think that there's a relation with with oh, that yeah. because that happens obviously during the, the greater part of it, right? There's like a festival in the spring and then there's one in, uh, in early September. Absolutely. Um, every year for the equinox, cause it's close to my birthday. It's very important to me that that particular time of year, um, I publish an article called Demeter's sorrow, which Demeter is Persephone's mother. Mm -hmm. And yeah, absolutely. Um, the maiden that Persephone represents is absolutely evoking that deeper astro theological maiden. Absolutely. Um, and the, the equinox represents the greater mysteries of the Eleusinian mysteries. Um, and this was when the, the knowledge of eternal life was, was, uh, was gained because Persephone's death, meaning her descent into the underworld represented the the beginning of the end for life on the earth demeter's sorrow is actually representative of the life on earth the beautiful fruit-defying flourishing summer mm -hmm. the days. earth and nature kind of yeah. like the loss of the yeah. the loss of the human soul like the soul yeah. got lost from its source basically yeah, like exactly. which was viewed as nature at the time rather than you know necessarily some being in the sky yeah, exactly. 100%. Mm. And so, um, but the story goes that, you know, Persephone is allowed to return in the spring. And so the Eleusinian mysteries, as far as we can tell, we don't know everything because they are shrouded in uh, mystery and lost in history somewhat. Um, but they were, the mysteries were to instruct the initiates in the truth of eternal life. Mm -hmm. which was demonstrated to them through the story of Persephone. So part of celebrating the equinox was to reenact Demeter's sorrow. And so starting at the end of Virgo season and stretching on into the equinox, which begins Libra, they would actually, they would go on this like long journey of sorrow and they would experience the tears of Demeter and they would get deeply into these ecstatic states that were full of grief saying goodbye mm -hmm. to the 
the harvest essentially because nothing new is going to grow mm-hmm. in a very short time you know we're heading mm-hmm. to Scorpio season really quick yeah that um, tradition is super interesting um because there it goes back to a time where in like the religious tradition of the time i mean there really was no conventional it was a lot of different like mystery cults all around of, of different groups of people that believed in some deity or some archetype over another. It's interesting to me that uh, in that tradition, there's it's it, the, the, uh, there's a hierophant and a high priestess too. And they were both on like equal standing within the, you know, within that, uh, that religion basically. So that that's that's really interesting. Um, yeah. Sorry, I, I to just to interject real quick. Uh, uh, relating to what you said about Virgo and everything, that was awesome because you kind of tied back into what we mentioned with Scorpio and Sagittarius and how that shows in Persephone's hero's journey. Um, in everything you said about Virgo, my moon's in Virgo and it's in the 10th house. So my work experience, I am a teacher. I am in, you know, the, the, the world that you thought you'd be entering is my world. And yeah. I find it's very similar where I, I'm not taking credit for things. I'm really focused on, you know, working with the kids in the best way possible to get something out of, you know, our time in, in a public school. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thankful to work in a district where I do get recognized by my administrators, but sometimes amongst other teachers, it's kind of like, you know, we're all kind of jostling around trying to make sure that we're all like noticed in, in a way. And I find that almost because I take a step back, uh, people end up becoming a little bit more jealous in a sense, because you're not actively trying to put yourself out there as your personality as being like a top dog. And yeah. in some ways that irks people, and maybe that's my Scorpio part as well, but the, the Virgo qualities are super important for, uh, you know, our world and where we're at today, separating those seeds. You know, yeah. you mentioned what, what kids are going through now and what our flock is going to be like in the future. And so, you know, it's, it's very important work um, to understand, you know, the sorrow, the falling away of the changes that we're dealing with in the world. And how do we find that faith? How do we learn the lesson of Sagittarius to then power us through, um, you know, to have hope for the future and to build that future actively? Yeah. Um, so I just I just wanted to comment on that uh, quickly. And um, I, I, to bring it back a little bit to the houses, um, and, and we talked about different signs. And, and I, where do you see the houses and the signs kind of mixing into each other, because that is kind of how pop astrology explains those sorts of things. Hmm. Um, and if you want to maybe mention, you uh, refer to outer planet transits, how hmm. can that kind of, how can we, you know, view some of those bigger transits, maybe beyond Saturn, because we always focus on our Saturn transits, but is there a way to kind of help us understand the houses in terms of the opposites? Um, you know, you mentioned Virgo and Pisces as a way that you kind of understood astrology early on. So I know I'm tying a lot of things in there, but they're all, they're all like adding up. So I see the connections and I want to make sure, uh, you know, you get a chance to comment on these things. Okay. Um, houses and signs actually don't have anything to do with each other. Like that's not a good way of learning astrology. Um, if there's a default idea of what a natal chart looks like, which would begin with Aries, the first sign in the Zodiac. And if you were in Aries rising, Aries would be in the first house. And because the first house represents the initiation of the houses, there is some resonance there, but it's not a good way to learn astrology because they are separate layers. And once the layers are put back together and synthesized, 
it's one whole beautiful organic thing, but the houses are like a clock face or the face of a sundial. It's static. It's static. Mm -hmm. The houses are like the clock face, which show us the divisions of fields of experience, the divisions Mm -hmm. of time and experience. And it's so, so important to just see the houses are static. They don't move. We are placing on top of the houses the reality of what was where when you were born. And then we have a picture of what was going on, Mm. what's going on in your natal chart. So Mm. there might be like some minor resonances with like the eighth house and Scorpio, but they're really not the same thing. So it is very lazy astrology and not good for your analysis to just conflate the two and call them the same thing. Mm. thing. We love making fun of pop astrology on here, by the way, that's like one of our favorite pa- uh, pastimes when we speak about you know, astrology. You hear that a long time, right? I, uh, and signs I, are not the same <laughs> I have yeah. a great, a uh, great example. I was like scrolling through, I think on Instagram or something. Yeah. Um, and I saw like the, the, the most like aggravatingly hilarious uh, version of uh, pop astrology I've ever seen. Yeah. It was, uh, just a little sign that said, uh, you know, it was like a forecast for the for the week for some specific sign. I think it was for like Libra or whatever or something like that. And uh, it was like two or three sentences long. And it said, now is the time to consider ending your relationship. And that's all of it I said. Oh, and I'm just like, Jesus Christ. Like, imagine like somebody like ruins their like best relationship just because they read some stupid baseless, like thing that someone just thought would be cool to say. Cause you know, yeah. they thought about it. So Tell that's where the Virgo it. energy comes in well there to have some, you know, skepticism and an analysis of things. And I think that comes through very clearly in yeah. your writing uh, where it's not like fluff. There's not the not much fluff. It's pretty concise and it's sticking around the archetypes. It's really very hard to refute a lot of the things you say because they are more archetypal and poetic rather than something that's like, you need to do this and that and this. Like the difference yeah. between, uh, you know, divination or foretelling the future yeah. uh, and, 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 using it to understand yourself, understand your life. There's like that different viewpoint um, in astrology, tarot, et cetera. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, the thing is, is that I, I do use astrology to forecast, um, but it's not in this like hokey Mm -hmm. horoscope way. Mm -hmm. I, I can see weather patterns and I can tell people about weather patterns. I can't tell you how to choose to respond to the weather. I can make like good suggestions, but I do think uh, it's really important to stay in your lane when you're working with this stuff because it's extremely powerful. And Mm -hmm. to use this to give bad advice is just, it's embarrassing. And it's the reason why both Christians and scientists hate astrology. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's mutual hate. hate. (laughs) And I that's funny. That's one thing they agree on (laughs) all the time. With both of them on that point. You know, when, when they're, when they're unaware of the deeper aspects, the deeper uses, the deeper meaning, um, I don't blame them for writing it off. I even wrote it off for a time in my life, which was an important part of my journey so that I could live in that reality. Um, and it is important to remember the context of the time we're living in. We're living in, you know, an astrological renaissance and many have happened before. 
they always come in historical periods where there it's an information age. So one example is the great city of Alexandria. That was a really important time in history because it was the crossroads of the known world. Everything was coming together and syncretizing there. And lo and behold, astrology not only evolved and developed tremendously, but it became very important because there seems to be a really deep correlation with the evolution of human knowledge mm-hmm. and astrological consciousness. So Freedom of information, sharing of new ideas, kind of like reinvigoration. In the last uh, podcast we did, we we talked about that phenomenon of after like a plague or a dark age usually comes in an enlightenment age. Um, exactly, 100%. So yeah, another one of those times was Elizabethan England. And that was because, well, it was a lot of things. It's very simplistic what I'm saying, but you know, there was a, a civil war that actually paralyzed a lot of the censorship laws that they had in correlation with the fact that the the printing press was becoming quite common. It had proliferated the power of the average person, the common man to actually print anything that they would be interested in sharing. Plus the lack of censorship laws This created the astrological renaissance that, you know, we still are picking up on through Shakespeare and, of course, like the legend of John Dee and all of that was going on because of several things. But it was an information age because of the printing press. And number two, whatever was going on in the, you know, the civil battles of culture and society had actually just removed some of the barriers to publishing things like astrology which would have been heresy like mm-hmm. a decade before so all of a sudden and there's you know william Lilly, christian astrology who published astrology in english so now you don't have to read latin in order mm-hmm. to study astrology so that was a big big time and we're in another age like that because of the internet and because of this great need to understand one another more deeply to to actually evolve into this sort of global consciousness, which has a lot of benefits, but a lot of devastating effects. Um, There's so much need for what astrology has to offer. And these silly horoscopes, getting back to that, you know, it's like- Yeah, the pop astrology stuff. it's, um, It's a place to start. So a lot of people will start there and they'll evolve past it. But it is like a thorn in everybody's side because- It's interesting and it's fun- it's you know, like to, to each their own. I don't want to yuck anybody's yum with that, but it's like, um, just like with any, uh, any field, uh, like take like naturopathy, for example, the least common denominator of like understanding in the field is often the one that like gets the whole profession in trouble or gets, you know, uh, people to just write off the whole of it. And I think pop astrology, the, the, the worst aspect of it is that it makes people write off astrology entirely and uh, not see that there's a lot of levels of nuance and different ways of viewing it. There's no like necessarily like right way. Um, there's many ways that, you know, can be argued for. Um, and the way that you approach it in general is more through that kind of archetypal historical lens. And even if, you know, like that kind of thing can never really go away because that's dealing with you know, symbols and images and, and archetypes and things like that. And even if, you know, in a thousand years, people are not necessarily doing astrological readings or something, or they are, who knows, who knows what will happen. Those ideas, you cannot, 
you can you can try, you can burn all the books, you can burn people at the stake for talking about astrology and things, but you can't get rid of those ideas because they're not in like they're in the the psyche itself. That's why astrology has such a lasting undefeatable aspect that no matter what people say will always have some existence. It's myth. And people think what that means is that it's not true or that it's some kind of dalliance yeah. in fantasy. And I'm like, no, no myth is the pattern of reality. It's the pattern of creation told through story. It's more true. Myth is more true. It's a condensation of reality, right? right. It's like a movie, right? right. Uh, Imagine if they had a movie where it was like uh, the whole of somebody's life. Like, first of all, that would be like it would take your whole life to watch it. Uh, Second of all, there'd be a lot of really like just very mundane moments like, you know, going for a walk, drinking water like (laughs) that would that would make up like a very large percentage of it. But a movie takes that all condenses out the biggest things It like focuses in on some big moment in the person's life, like what brought them there and all this. Uh, And. I really like that understanding of, of movies and uh, books and, and things like that uh, yeah. and astrology and myth yeah. that it's a, it's a condensation of truth. It's really more accurate to say it's hyper real rather than it's unreal. Yeah, totally. And I, if it's I, good, I, if it's good, if it's pop astrology, then like it's, it's fun. If it's like, if it touches the archetype, then it's hyper real. I would say some pop astrology is good. It really just depends on, you know, it's like bubblegum pop music can be really good. It can. It's fun, fun stuff. Yeah, just like good. fun conversation and stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, no, it's not. And I do like, I do write horoscopes occasionally for like special things like a Mercury retrograde or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but the thing that's interesting about horoscopes is that they're um, usually read for the sun sign when, in your case, Eric, it would work. But your horoscope actually should be read for the rising sign. I mean, this is just one of the problems with it. It's just so, it's so jam-packed with issues. In order to actually read where the planets are transiting in your chart, the houses that are being transited by whatever planets are in discussion, you need to look at the rising sign. So actually, you can get, if, if you want to continue to read pop astrology, if you have a pop astrology column that you like, if there's a horoscope column you like, read for your rising sign listeners, because that will actually give you some level of accuracy, at least even in these simple terms, like you can actually get some information that might be really useful to you. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if you read for your sun sign, unless your sun sign is the same as your rising sign, it's going to be all off, all off. And that is not helpful at all. So um, one reason why people think it's ridiculous that and of course there's the temptation for people to just make stuff up you know yeah it's creativity and stuff but you're also giving people advice so like there has to be some distinction there it like you don't like release a post that tells people to break up with people just because they're a libra for example like that i felt i was i just shook my head laughed and then i was just like this is like exactly this is like this is like the archetypal definition of what i mean by pop astrology where like i would just say it's like it's just astrology really, really watered down, really not investigated, really not thought through, really not referenced by any astrological works. I mean, you don't need a research study, but at least like 
unless, you know, some people can be very intuitive and they just get these these images that come to them. And that but you know, that's not pop astrology because that will resonate. Yeah. It's like exactly. the fun. It's like the fun. I don't know. It's like seems to be the the astrology equivalent of uh, what Oscar Wilde said about everything that is popular is wrong, <laughs> which is my favorite, is my favorite saying of his. Oh, and yeah. um, every time I get upset about like anything that's like popular and stupid, uh, that's that's what I think of, and uh, yeah. it makes me pretty happy to think about that. It's pretty cool, <laughs> you know. In a Renaissance, it's about proliferation of something and. I can't believe how popular astrology is, even since I started. And it was pretty popular, you know, when I was very young. I, I wouldn't say that I've lived in a time when it wasn't popular, but it's it's huge. It's tremendously huge. It's very important. It's very influential. It's changing the way that people think about life, time, the quality of time. And that's really what we're studying is the quality of time. Who cares about quantity of time? We have that completely and totally measured. It's It cannot be calculated with any more precision. Clock time is set, you know, and we all, we have the atomic clock now metering out our days and our hours and our minutes and our milliseconds. But astrology- Have you seen what the atomic clock looks like? Whew, no. <laughs> I was watching some documentary about it. It is, in, it is very interesting. It's like using uh, like- I think it's electrons or radioactive decay or something. It's like this gigantic machine and you can see like lights coming out of it. Wow. It's some really, really cool stuff. Pretty mystical actually. At its it heart. is very mystical. Yeah. When I saw the documentary, I was like, this is like just about as mystical as science can be. Like, and the guy was like talking about it very excitedly and things like that. He wasn't just like very dry, but I was like, okay, yeah, this, I like this kind of stuff. Exactly. And you don't need astrology for that. You don't need astrology to teach you about linear time or atomic. Yeah. We kind of are past that point of needing it. Like maybe perhaps for like very long cycles of the universe, because that's difficult to measure. Right. Otherwise. Cyclical time is different. It's a different consciousness. And it's the consciousness that we had before we had clock time. There was a time before we had clock time, you know? I mean, I think the clock became like a common feature in European villages, not until like 1600. I mean, it's pretty recent history. Again, it's like Enlightenment era stuff. It's not that long ago that we started living by linear time measured by the clock. And before that, there was cyclical time. Cyclical time is that seasonal time. The sun rises mm -hmm. and falls. What season is it? It's rising and falling, ebbing and flowing. Everything is a cycle. And so astrology is just that consciousness and a very elegant, complex, very complex description of cyclical time. Everything from a very recognizable cycle, like the sun's cycle, through the seasons everyone knows the four seasons whether they're into astrology or not day and night those are cycles um but obviously we can reach back very deeply into history and naturally you can look forward and you only look forward not with ultimate prophetic clarity but you can see weather patterns and you can see when stress points will be you can see how cycles are repeating themselves. So interestingly enough, you know, the, the pandemic was something that began after the Saturn-Pluto conjunction yes. in Capricorn. Now, that conjunction between Saturn and Pluto and Capricorn had happened before in uh, the 1500s 
at a time that was basically the, 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 the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And so, you know, years ago when I first saw that, I was like, oh my God, a Protestant Reformation is going to happen. That doesn't sound very fun. <laughs> that doesn't yeah. sound very no, fun. That's okay. Sure. That's okay. It's, it's going to be weird at first, but then once we it's get good, going, but it's, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of bad things. We'll spread some new first. knowledge around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. I can't tell like what all, how the chips are all going to fall. But what I could see is like, okay, so there's going to be something like that, a Protestant reformation, something so impactful that it tears society apart, divides everybody. Things become vicious, vicious fight between warring sides, ideological war that is vicious. I could see that. I am not saying that I'm a prophet. It's actually scientific at that point. It's a mathematical, it's a degree that was, that was uh, conjoined Saturn and Pluto conjoined on that degree in this year also. So it's just at that point, it's extremely analytical. It has nothing to do with how intuitive you are. You're just like, to the best of my knowledge, I can see that that pattern at some point, at some level is going to repeat. Um, I had a feeling that something really hardcore was going to go down. I didn't know what I couldn't, I couldn't tell what I knew something. I would not have been able to guess that it was going to be so severe. You know, nobody could have guessed that we had no imagination to be able to predict that something so intense was going to happen, but Mm -hmm. that's how astrology works. It's exactly the same as what you, you're a history teacher. Historians do exactly the same thing. They see patterns repeating and they go, "Uh Oh, if we don't so, learn, this correctly. looks like something else, guys, yeah. guys, yeah. read exactly. your textbooks, <laughs> something, something weird is happening. Exactly. And so yeah. it's not um, anything more than that. It's just human intelligence being applied mm-hmm. to understand reality and to understand past, present and future. All of us project into the future. None of us are lacking that sense of future. All of us imagine the future, even if it's just like I'm imagining what dinner is going to be like tonight. I'm imagining what that conversation is going to be like. We all make predictions. And so when you have this kind of knowledge of all this data and all of these cycles and all these planetary transits, the natural human imagination just begins to make predictions like we all do with knowledge and information that we already have. Whatever information you have causes you to make predictions about how an interview is going to go, how a friend date is going to go how a date's going to go, how you're going to enjoy a book. You know, it's all based on what you already know and you predict. We do it Mm. every day. And so all astrologers do, or all they should claim to do is that. Um, But it's not, it's not foolproof. It's not without bias. So in order to become a better and better uh, a predictor, you have to become more and more objective and you have to become more and more experienced and more and more wise. And you have to know a lot about the past. So maybe I could have made a more clear prediction of what was going to go down after the Saturn Pluto conjunction. If I knew more about the history of that time, mm. I just kind of like kind of a rough sketch. I'm like, Oh, you know, it's very interesting. Yeah. Like we're going to have a reformation and it's who knows. And I'm like, what I, what I saw was like, who's, who's the good guy. Who's the bad guy. Right. <laughs> Hard to tell these days. Yeah. It's very hard to tell. And it was back then too. Yeah. You know, and, um, and that's an interesting story for me because I went to a Lutheran school and actually I love the Lutherans. I do not 
actually regret that at all. They were really good to me and they, they didn't, they didn't Bible thump and they didn't use fear to control us. They were really good people. And so I really am grateful for my religious education. Um, but one thing that they did do was paint a very rosy picture of Martin Luther because they're Lutherans. you know. <laughs> so I had a very simplistic view of what the Protestant Reformation was for a very long time until I grew up. Um, so when I was little, I thought it was, you know, those were the good guys, but history reveals a very complex picture. They were not the good guys. There was some, yeah, change is messy. So we're going through something like that right now. That's useful because it provides context. Um, it's historically interesting because we can learn something about our time by studying the past and you go, what past, where do you go? Well, you can start with something simple. Like when was the last time the Saturn Pluto conjunction happened at that degree in Capricorn? That's one road that you can go down, but there are so many things like that. And that's how you weave time together. Mm. And it creates a totally different dimension of time than linear clock time. You know, it's, ebbing and flowing, rising and falling, forever repeating, always cycling. Um, and that's how myths work. That's how religion honors its holidays, its rites of passage, its initiations. All of these things are cyclical. Um, so this like linear world that we live in has become extremely, extremely confining. For very, very suffocating to the spirit and good, right. good, good feeling. Technocratic people are suffering. Yeah from it they're suffocating from the amount of lines it's it's lines vertical lines in society that you're trying to ascend and then it's lines of time where you're just sort of running from the devouring jaws of time hoping <laughs> to like run from the past and get to a brighter future but you're kind of stuck in this hallway yeah on a treadmill yeah on a treadmill exactly <laughs> <laughs> It's extremely unnatural. I like that hamster wheel. It exists. We invented it. We created this reality through our own imagination, which is brilliant. It's amazing. Human beings are amazing. We created a dimension of time and we're living in it. However, it's so restrictive and so confining. And that's why we're having an astrological renaissance and many other forms of renaissance as well. It's not just astrological, but Again, going back to the Florentine Renaissance that we all think of when we use that word, that was first and foremost a hermetic Renaissance. That was the foundation from which all that great art and architecture and scientific rediscovery happened. It started with a hermetic awakening. And astrology is one of the hermetic sciences, astrology, alchemy, and magic. Mm -hmm. So it's not a coincidence. It's just a pattern repeating that we are having another hermetic awakening, which is leading to a tremendous amount of rebirth. And mm. we're in the middle of it right now. We're seeing it happen and it is super messy. It is not a simple black and white. Things were bad before. Now they're good. And like the dark age was not fully healed by the Renaissance. There was, you know, a lot of layers to it, a lot of complexity, but it is happening again. And I think that the reason why this time it's not the dogma of the church, it's the dogma of science, linear time, specifically linear time, linear thinking, mm -hmm. just, it puts people in these tight categories and people are going to war over the categories because class and social status and race and mm. 
and and everything else that is your IQ, everything is Mm. plotted on a graph through lines. Yes. So confining and it's extremely. It's like our, our tools, our measurement became our gods. I just had that Mm. intuition on that. It's at first, you know, like measuring things was just like an immense breakthrough in the world. You could like predict, you could trade, like money is really just a, a measurement of value and time is just a measurement of the transformation of the present moment in some kind of uh, repeatable way. Uh, but when that becomes the becomes the God of people versus a tool, that's when you start getting into weird things, I think where, you know, people are living by the living and dying by the clock, really, um, instead of like using it as like a tool for, you know, doing anything that they want, essentially. Uh, Eric, you had to, you had some some things to add or some questions. Well, you're, we're talking about cycles here. I kind of want to stay on that. Um, you know, you talked about the Saturn-Pluto conjunction. That was obviously huge. That happened in January. Everyone was like wondering, what is it going to be? What's it going to be? And then, you know, obviously it was the pandemic in that sense and so many other things after that. Are there any other outer planet uh, transits, conjunctions that are coming up that uh, have kind of been on your eye for a while and that you're kind of anticipating or that could signal maybe some sort of, uh, you know, turning point uh, ahead for us? Uh, you know, had your kids, had your wife, <laughs> any, any kind of stuff like that. <laughs> um, well, actually right now we're a little bit past two really important ones and we're in the middle of the United States' Pluto return. Yes. Something important. Um, that is a whole talk in and of itself. I actually did mm. a YouTube live stream on that because, and I could say more, I mean, it's a lot, but let me try to summarize that. The United States, every country has a natal chart too. It's not just people because all a natal chart is, is a snapshot of a moment in time. Your natal chart is the snapshot of the moment in time when you were born. Very important. Um, But countries, as well as businesses, as well as books that are published, everything has a natal chart. And so the United States has a natal chart and the planet Pluto moves so slowly through the zodiac that it has taken since 1776 for it to come back around to the point that it was at when this country was first founded. And what the Pluto return of a nation represents is a total breakdown, like a dissolution, a destruction of its, of anything that is faulty or anything that is grown corrupt, anything that's been poisoned or diseased. Basically Pluto comes and just it eats away anything that's decayed. And everybody who lives in the United States is well aware that a tremendous amount of our country is decayed. You know, our political system is nothing but rot and poison and corruption. And so the Pluto return represents the, the revelation of that and things start to fall apart. Things start to crumble. Um, this was exact in February and it's going to mm. continue to be an influence for the next two years. So we are in that right now. That's very important. It has some very positive implications though. I know that sounds so grim and so destructive, but it's a wonderful thing because it's going to change the shape of the nation, the intention of the nation, the purpose of the nation. And what I hope is that it actually brings it back to its original intention. 
in this modern age where that original intention can be fulfilled at a higher level than was possible in the 18th century. You know, so um, not to be utopian, but that is the the hope that the the imperial intentions yes. will be stripped. Mm. It's a potential, like the same, yeah. like uh, what you said about the Pluto return. It, it makes a lot of sense where, you know, the the place in the cycle that the world was when the country was formed, it's going to return to a place which will rhyme with it yeah. uh, as the seasons do, as time does, as cycles do it. It's pretty intuitive for most people, even if they don't necessarily follow in astrology that that happens. That's right. um, and uh, for those who are like, well, when did that start? You know, um, it's exact right now. And the exact influence is about two, two more years. Um, but Pluto entered Capricorn mm. in 2008 and it happened like, Pluto enters Capricorn, and then there is the the crash in two thousand eight. <laughs> yep. Interesting with the yeah. economic, the recession, the recession, and then all sorts of, and then it kind of got. It was kind of a foreboding of what was what's to come now. You know, we're going to see a lot of these themes repeat now as Pluto leaves Capricorn and enters Aquarius. So right. maybe, do you want to comment real quickly on what you think Pluto and Aquarius will bring us? What do we have to look forward to after this? Mm. You know, this kind of death and resurrection that we'll be experiencing over the next few years. Well, the the really dark side is that we're going to continue to have to struggle against the kind of like the the transhumanist. Mm-hmm. You know, robot agenda. I don't know what else to call it. Like, That's fair. <laughs> like, it's accurate. This, uh, yeah, this like space odyssey two thousand and one. Also, like biogenetics and things like that. They they have oh, a similar yeah. kind of energy, kind of like a very, yeah, uh, um, yeah, a very, yeah. Rachel, very your last unheated. article really <laughs> yeah. hit that on the head. Your last article was all about how we need to get back to nature itself yeah. through the body and avoid this for yeah. our own survival. I do, but that, and that's the positive thing because while there is always going to be like an elite group of people that are abusing the power of science to do unholy things to nature, which will include all kinds of things that we don't really need to discuss in detail, just horrible things, (laughs) horrible, unholy things to bodies and plants and, you know, us, um, there is that element to Pluto and Aquarius because the challenge is dealing with an authority that's so removed from humanity, so untethered from common sense experience, common people, real life, essentially, that um, they have lost all connection, all feeling. So that is the truly devastating, terrifying (laughs) quality. Mm -hmm. But the beautiful thing about Aquarius, and this is something that will definitely pull through, and we can look to history again, the Declaration of Independence was signed in 1776, but the Revolutionary War was not won for many more years. Yes. And Pluto was in Aquarius when the war was won. Excellent. Pluto was in Aquarius. So mm. Aquarius is a sign that brings together people who actually are not a part of the ruling class, who are not after ungodly amounts of power, who are not tyrants or aligned with tyrants, but are rather just regular people who have the desire to thrive, to flourish, to invent, to create, to enjoy human life, you know, and that commonality between people who are not in the ruling class 
which is 99% of the globe, they will be positively benefited and blessed in many ways by Pluto and Aquarius. So there is going to be a reshaping of society, but there's going to be a lot more power that goes back to common people. And I don't mean that word in a derogatory way. I mean, like all of us, Absolutely. common people, um, the mm-hmm. ideas of democracy that have never been truly realized, they're going to come back in a big way. And the struggle mm. will always, There's some dangers with that too. There's a, you know, that's the, the old philosophical argument, uh, against democracy by, by, you know, Plato and other, uh, philosophers that like at its worst, it becomes mob rule and mob rule is like, that's like the inquisition. That's like all the witch hunts, like when masses of people start doing things that are, so there's a danger to democracy. That's like the, that's the dark side of it. Yeah. Uh, is it good to strive for it? Definitely. I mean, especially if you can kind of find some some balance between like mob rule and totalitarianism, if you could find some <laughs> some place in there where it's like there's some influence, but like people aren't like riding in the streets and things like that. That would be that would be a great place. Having so, more connection between, um, you know, the needs and desires of people who actually are citizens of a nation and the people that represent them is the kind of ultimate outcome of Pluto and Aquarius. Uh, but there will be struggles that, that, that freedom and sovereignty that Aquarius represents for the individual um, and for the collective is something that has to be fought for. You know, it's hard one. It's not something that is just handed to you on a silver platter. Mm-hmm. So there is that, quality to it that we have to remember, like we're going to be challenged. There's going to be more struggles against censorship, against economic manipulation, and against this technology that nobody wants taking over every aspect of our life. Um, But through that struggle will rise this like power of sovereignty for the individual. Once again, just like Mm. in the 18th century, when the ideals that this country was founded on, I'm not saying they were perfectly enacted, but the Mm. ideals were to protect the rights of the individual. And they went a step further. They actually declared that the rights of a human being are given to them by the divine, not by governments. So it's Mm -hmm. not like we're giving you this right because we like it. Yes. That's very, very important point. Yeah. Yeah. It's you, the right is it, it's inalienable is the the, yeah. the word they use there. It's not that's something that's given to you and therefore to take it away is yeah. uh, it's kind of like a misunderstanding of, of what a, a right actually is. The government mm-hmm. is there to protect people's rights actually. Totally. And that's what the spirit of Aquarius is really deeply intrinsically aware of. And I do believe that that, that knowledge, that philosophical point of view will rise when Pluto is in Aquarius through great, stress and struggle yes but that that point of view is going to rise again this spiritual awakening that everybody can see that the astrological renaissance is just one facet of yes um but there's a much deeper spiritual awakening that is in complete it's a complete anathema to everything that we were raised to be you know dogmatic materialists um that is bringing people back to the knowledge that uh your government doesn't give you the right to be free or mm-hmm. 
to live by mm. your own conscience or to declare mm. what's true, you know, th- that's not their right to give to you or take away. It's, mm. it's divine. And there are divine laws in the universe. And that's really what the spiritual awakening is about is acknowledging that there's divine laws. You can't violate all of these divine laws for you can, but you'll pay for it. You'll pay for it with your own, with your own experience, really, you know, people who, who do, who abuse power, they become tyrants. I mean, the story is like always the same, Uh, you know, at the height of their power, like, People try to kill them all the time. They become in- increasingly like isolated and paranoid, and then eventually they they die by the same tool that they used to mm-hmm. harm others. That's that's like it, uh, Carl Jung talked about this idea where you you need to understand mythology and these recurring themes because if you don't, you don't know if you're you're currently living in like a heroic journey or you're living in a tragedy. It just hasn't like gotten to its end. If you don't know the, the archetypal progression of things, you don't, you don't find, um, you can't like suddenly wake up and realize like, Hey, like maybe all this stuff I'm uh, doing to all these people that I'm not considering is, uh, is actually going to come around and bite me real hard. Mm-hmm. And it, it always does eventually. Yeah. Uh, thank God in some sense for death because you know, all men and all women must die. So like nothing bad can ever last. Nothing good can ever last forever. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that's, that's one thing that no matter, you know, what, what people try, as long as, I don't know, life extension is going to, is going to cause a lot of political issues. Like there's already, like there's already a problem with a serious stagnation, um, a crystallization of like the, the leader class, which, you know, like they they do a noble job. Uh, there's many of them that definitely take it, uh, you know, take advantage of it in some ways. It it's it's human in some sense. Um, but I think what you said about like the like the common versus the elite. I think the 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 biggest move forward. I would I would argue would be to really uh, have a commonality between all people in like common service of humanity, common service of good, because, you know, people who are leaders are, they're, they're actually super necessary. Uh, In these days they've become like incredibly like bureaucratic and like just very kind of difficult to get anything done. It's like this whole machinery that it's kind of like the conventional medical system where, even if a doctor like really wants to do good, if they really follow with like the standard of care, like they're going to just be another cog in whatever that machine wants to do with, with humans. And I think the, you know, for, for people to kind of like realize that and, um, and read Marcus Aurelius meditations. If you're in the ruling class, please, please read it. (laughs) Please read it. That's what I would say. Totally. That's good stuff. And and somebody, you know, this idea of like, even like uh, this idea that there's like an elite that that rules and there's like a class of leaders that is in some sense like conditioned into us by the very people who would take advantage of us. 
uh, a lot of the greatest leaders in history were like musicians, they were artists, they were philosophers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you can be a leader in your own right for your own community and, uh, you know, helping people around you and things like that. So you don't need to like wait for anybody to give you permission to do the right thing. You don't need to wait for permission to, uh, to like work on solving some problem that's uh, troubling people and things like that. We're kind of, you know, that that's I think that's the biggest that's the biggest thing and that's like the ultimate kind of secret to to overcoming any kind of tyranny is that you know the ninety nine and one percent it it has the connotations of some kind of like violence or whatever but I I don't think that that's good because usually what happens is whoever gets taken out of power like somebody even worse comes in like the most violent and and a terrible of the bunch leading that like kind of in the French revolution is the one who's going to be, it's usually just the overthrow of a dictator often leads to even worse dictatorship. Uh, yep. So that's not the, that's not the proper way to go about it for anybody. It's just like adding insult to injury, but, but realizing that everybody has their own, you know, like you were talking about this uh, sovereignty and the, the right you have and, and just focusing your mind on, on good things and doing those things. And really uh, I found for myself, uh, like forming like an island within yourself and like your work and whatever whatever you do uh, that will protect you against like all these influences going on, like what's going on in the news or fears and, and things like that. They usually don't do much good and they, they detract one from like actually doing something about it. So um, yeah. I think that's super important during these times. I feel like there's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of boiling up going on. And it's, it's very, it's very worrying. Um, but Bog, there is a lot of hope, uh, you know, thankfully with Gen Z being so interested in astrology, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, Rachel, you're going to have a lot of people to work with as the years go on now. And then really, you know, building up the sense of sovereignty of individualism within people. I think astrology is an amazing tool to do that. That's kind of how I you know, found its use in my own life. So, you know, having these talks and see, seeing where things are going, having the idea of, okay, you know, Pluto and Capricorn has been rough. We kind of understand what it means now, having lived through it. We're going to, you know, predict ahead and maybe prophets, prophesize a little bit about what's ahead in Aquarius. And, you know, it kind of aligns with the next election in terms of when Pluto starts moving into Aquarius. So people might start to see that, you know, in front of them, even though subconsciously it's happening you know, at the cycle level there. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's... Uh, we're, we're kind of midwiving this new world a little bit here. But it's, it's definitely going you know, on vacation to another country during the next election. I'm, I'll tell you what, you just made <laughs> well, me realize <laughs> I'm not going to be here for that. <laughs> that's a good idea, you know, and we have one more good. rough patch coming up this year with um, Mars going retrograde in Gemini. That's going to be Ooh, uh, <laughs> conflict there, huh? Yeah, that's happening. Um, at the very end of October, either October 31st or November 1st, depending on where you are, stations, which mm. great in Gemini. Um, we'll just say, like, if you think we're in an information war already, that is just emblematic of an information war. So something, I don't know what, I don't know what, I have no idea. Yes. But it's during an election, not a national election, but still, like, you know, it's considering how things are right now, it's going to be really tense. Okay. <laughs> like, it's going to be really tense, but it also retrograde Mars is, um, it brings out a lot of repressed anger. So that's why it's kind of dangerous. Mm -hmm. 
the last time Mars went retrograde, it was in Aries. And we all remember when all the cities in the United States were burning, there were just protests. And yeah, it was, it was crazy here in Portland. We had like a curfew. There was like sirens. There was like, yeah. I've never experienced something like that in my life. It was like that. Hide your kids, hide your wife, stay inside type of thing. Yeah. Very, yeah. very weird uh, to be very in the midst good. of it. Cause you realize actually when something like that happens, how, how fundamentally helpless you actually are because it's such a, it's such a far ranging phenomenon when there's like war or some kind of catastrophe that like, there's no real way to ensure insulation from it other than just not being there mm -hmm. during that. Yeah, it was, um, I mean, think about what people had gone through. If Mars retrograde brings out repressed anger. Yeah. There's and so much repressed anger in these past few years. I mean, you know, I so much, you know, people who feel like they've been lied to and things and enough's enough. And, you know, th they haven't read the meditation. So they're, they, their first move is towards doing, you know, harm to other people. But yeah. at the end of the day, that's just going to do harm to them. Uh, yes. So um, that's coming up again, but it's in a different sign. And that's important. So that, that Mars retrograde, it was in the middle of a really terrible time in history. So it was definitely aggravated by the level of, you know, the conditions people have been living in. We were all repressed, locked in, stir crazy. Um, those that have less ability to control their temper or are less aware of their unconscious, you know, less integrated, the less integrated you are, the more dangerous a time like that is for you. Um, but it's a dangerous time for us all because obviously when everyone started lighting things on fire and things became very violent, Everyone was in danger. And that was Aries. Mm -hmm. It was just pure chaos. It was really just chaos, really. It, was like it wasn't pure, like some kind of – or, yeah, you know. There's something to be said about, like, people, you know, gathering together for a common cause, for a common good, trying to bring about, like, some change. But the chaos and anarchy is definitely something that's not good, I would say, in general. It doesn't really bring any good results, usually. No. It, it doesn't, but it is um, unavoidable in some sense. It could be argued to be inevitable and part of the process. Yeah, exactly. And so right. it's going to happen again, but in Gemini. So Gemini is Gemini. Uh, so like the two faced, the two faces nature, uh, the twins, which represents information processing, information input and output. Mm. Mm. The two hemispheres of the brain. Those are the twins. Mm. Um, one and zero, the binary of information processing. Uh, that's so interesting. My Gemini friend's actually a computer programmer. Right, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> Shout you out know to what Jake. I'm talking about, yeah, Jake. Yeah, exactly, and that you know the the whole idea of them having like lots of personalities. It's kind of true because they are so they have um, an endless capacity for learning, and part of learning is being able to mimic, being able to repeat what you've heard, do an impression of the language you're learning and, you know, mirror learning is all through mirror neurons and Gemini is excellent at that and they can mirror almost anything. And so their expression of self is very plastic because they can basically pick up on anything very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, they're very quick learners, you know, very bright and, and very curious and mm -hmm. what they lack is discernment about what's actually worth focusing on. <laughs> mm -hmm. yep. They're like, they're like cokeheads with information. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, 
But, okay, so Gemini is all about information, dissemination of information, curiosity, uh, anything in the media, anything, you know? Mm. So Mars retrograde, repressed anger about information that we're being fed en masse. Who knows? It could be, we could have, we could have cyber attacks. We could have, there's always misinformation campaigns going on, but there could Mm -hmm. be like the revelation that there's been some tremendous psyop that gets like totally revealed. Who knows? It's going to be messy. So we'll see that level of like repressed martial energy coming out, but in the sphere of information. Um, And we need to be very aware of that. So this is going to be happening during the elections and it's just something to consider. I don't want anybody to be afraid. I just want them to know and observe. And in yourself, at a personal level, it's important to know where Mars is going to be retrograding. And this is where houses are really useful. What house is Gemini in, in your chart? That's going to be the place in your life that's getting a lot of attention through this Mars transit. Because Mars is going to be in Gemini from August until January of next year. So it's a long transit because that retrograde slows that down and keeps him there forever. And that retrograde through Mars in Gemini, Gemini is going to be like, um, a huge confrontation with one of the biggest problems of our time, which is censorship as well as control of the media, as well as misinformation, disinformation, as well as, um, you know, using, the news to manipulate people through fear, lies, deceit, manipulation, power, corruption, and lies through the media, you know, so it's going to be a wild ride and we'll get to witness it. And what astrology provides is context. What the hell is going on? A Mars retrograde. Mm. And it doesn't make it easier, but context does allow you to string more meaning out of things. And so I didn't appreciate the time of everything burning I was also upset it was an upsetting thing but I also knew when it was going to happen and I knew when it was going to end essentially and that was helpful (laughs) yeah yeah you could yeah definitely uh so as we uh wrap this up I have one final uh uh question for you and then I'll also open the floor to to sir sir Eric for any final questions any questions you have for us um I wanted to end it on. So we talked about four signs. I was actually, uh, I was going to ask you specifically about Gemini funnily enough. So awesome that that you got to it. We, we basically, uh, we looked at like fire, earth, water, and air, um, out of the, the other signs. If you, if you'd like to pick, uh, a few or one that you want to focus in on, uh, can you basically share like, uh, uh, like, kind of like a game, like a rapid fire, like quick description of the different signs. Like of all 12, you mean? Yeah. Like a yeah. Keyword or something like maybe yeah, like, like a, a keyword buzzword. or like, <laughs> like a, a way to describe it or sure. something uh, like that. All right. So this Aries. might be, this might be, yeah, I'll, I'll draw it out too. Aries, mm-hmm. Sorry, the Aries. beginning, the birth, the ignition, the blade, the blade. Ooh. I like that. It's a good movie. Taurus. <laughs> yeah, it is actually. Yeah. <laughs> Taurus, the wisdom of the body, the garden of Eden, cultivating paradise. Hmm. Um, 
Gemini, Infophiliac, Dual Hemispheres, Binary Code, leave it at that, um, <laughs> Cancer, The Mother of the Nine Muses, The Waters of Memory, an oasis. Mm. Leo, the sun upon its throne. Oh, I like that one. To be or not to be. Carpathian. Virgo. The last sigh of summer mm. and sacrifice for the future. Libra, the scales of Mott weighing the heart against a feather. Mm. Beauty is truth and truth is beauty. Scorpio, sex, death, and transformation, the alchemist, uh, the myth of Orpheus. Mm, interesting. Sagittarius, the mystic, the prophet. The one that first explores outer space, true faith. Interesting. That was why oh, you got one more. Yeah. Sorry. Or two more. Three more. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Capricorn. You are, you're doing great, by the way. This is, Bravo. This is beautiful. Um, Excellent. I'm glad you like it. <laughs> Capricorn is the the um, the birth of the sun. The spirit's ascent. The desire to conquer this world and return to heaven. Mm. Aquarius is the wilderness, the wasteland, the exile in the wilderness, the heretic, the madman and the genius. The shaman. And then Pisces is 
the um, is all that we see but a dream within a dream. Is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream. It's the vast oceans of the abyss where everything in creation dissolves back into the infinite. And that's it. Epic. Very epic. I'm definitely going to make a clip out of that. <laughs> Sweet. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. It was so nice talking to both of you. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Eric, did you have any any final any final questions, final things to say? I mean, I feel very blessed that we were able to have this conversation on a day, you know, lunar eclipse day like this. It's gonna hopefully, you know, reverberate for a while. Um, and you know, just thanks again for being here, being willing to take our questions and um, you know, really. Uh, get into the nitty gritty, you know, as a Scorpio, I was hoping we would go deep and we, uh, you know, you did not disappoint by any means. So thank you. And I, I hope we can do this again at some point, maybe if there's a big, you know, something coming up, whether it's a transit or, a, you know, some sort of planetary, uh, you know, relationship change going on uh, to pick your brain on this is, is really just, uh, it's an honor. And, uh, you know, once again, thank you for, for allowing us some time to interview you today. Thank you. No, it's a pleasure. I really appreciate both of you. Um, and I also admire what you do for others as well. I was going to be a teacher. I really appreciate that you do that work. I know what an amazing job that is, but also what a hard job that is. So thank you for actually being one of the teachers that kids actually need to have. It's not an easy position to be in. I was there and I know mm -hmm. the level of sacrifice that you make for the kids. And I think that's wonderful. So mm -hmm. yeah, thank you, Eric. It was a pleasure to be of any help or service to you. And obviously, Dr. Dan, I think what you do is amazing as well. So it's a pleasure. If you ever want me to on your show again, I'm happy to come back on. Absolutely. Yeah. I've, you're a great guest. A lot of, lot of insight, a lot of things to talk about. I think, um, you know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, uh, all of us have kind of similar paths in some sense. Like I, I met Eric, um, in, in philosophy class when I, when I was studying in university. Yeah. And, uh, that's, that's too, like, that was my idea of that. I would be a teacher mainly. And a lot of, of like my grandparents and were that, uh, yeah. so we all have that like same inclination. I think what's, what's cool to point out about that is there's a lot of ways to do that, right? Like you can actually, you can work at a school, you can do your own thing. You can like write articles there. Like, yeah. I think the, what a teacher is, is somebody who shares information, but first and foremost, a teacher is someone who seeks to learn really, because teaching is just really an excuse to learn for, for me at least, particularly about <laughs> what I'm interested in. So I actually yep. use it in that, in that sense. Um, yeah. Rachel, so, before you go, uh, is there, are there any like, um, lessons that you're doing anything on your website that you're yes, offering yes. any classes? Thank you for, uh, thank you know, you for reminding me. Curious about that. Um, I am going to be releasing i am going to be launching a class on spiritual alchemy called spiritualized the art and soul of alchemy and that's going to probably be available by the end of may so depending on whenever this goes out um, it's very likely that i will be offering my spiritual alchemy class which is a really interesting journey through the planets from an alchemical perspective um, and I also in, um, in June, I'm going to have a class on Mercury and Gemini mm -hmm. and that's called cash flow. 
And it's all about how Mercury and Gemini corresponds to the ability to manifest cash. Um, so it's a money magic class, but it's a little deeper than that. That's kind of um, what it looks like on the surface. Uh, but it's it's a little bit more of a deep meditation on Mercury and Gemini than just that. But um, yeah, I would imagine you wouldn't be you wouldn't be teaching about anything very fluffy or pop astrology based on. No, no, it's a cool class. It's a cool class, but it is. Um, yeah, it's it's actually it's it's a philosophical class that um, dives into money as being nothing but thin air. It's just a magic trick. It doesn't exist. Um, and Mercury in Gemini is kind of the ultimate guide into that magic trick. Mm -hmm. And so it's a study of money. It's a study of Mercury in his rulership in Gemini. And um, it's a natural magic class, which is traditional Renaissance magic. Uh, so it's a lot of things all combined. And um, yeah, it's called cash flow. And that, that will be coming out in June. So yeah, I have an alchemy class and a, a Mercury and Gemini class coming right up. So if you want to be informed about that, you can sign up for my newsletter and you will not only receive information about my offerings, but you will also receive astrological updates from me and we'll be in touch. I treat my newsletter very well. It's, um, it's, it's something that I really love and feel devoted to. So if you're on my list, I love you and I don't send trash. I just send <laughs> astrological updates as well. Some, some as, gems. Yeah, really good stuff. So, um, and I have a podcast and stuff, so you'll find out about all that. So yeah, sign up for my list and we can keep in touch if you're interested in learning more. Excellent. And uh, all your links will be uh, below in the in the uh, description, show notes. I highly, highly recommend anyone who's interested in astrology to uh, take a look at the articles Rachel writes at uh, Aeolian Heart. They're they're quite they're quite epic and definitely worth a read and well written too. So, kudos. Looking keep, forward keep to the good next work. One. Thank yes. you. Yeah, too. yeah, you yeah. We we need your wisdom, uh, interpretation, astrological interpretation, particularly for all these changes that you know are inevitable um, and the way forward. Anyway, thank you again, Rachel. Thank you. Have a good. Thank time. you. Uh, thank you, Professor Eric, for uh, for gracing us with with your wisdom as well.